in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the 12 summoned the full number of disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to wait table, to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom who we will appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip and Prochorus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. All right, well, if you have your Bibles, please open up to chapter Acts chapter 6, just like Tiffany read. And we are going to look at verses 1 through 7. Acts is the fifth book in your New Testament. And uh, the sixth chapter of that book is where we find ourselves today. Now, when you look at the book of Acts, there is an overriding theme that's throughout this book. And it's the theme of unity. The church is God's plan to build his kingdom. And if the church is going to be the most effective at that, the church has to be united. Okay, the church has to be united in pursuing God's mission because if we don't have unity, we will malfunction. The church malfunctions without unity. And I'm so grateful that in all the amazing stories and all the amazing testimonies in the book of Acts, I'm grateful that Luke includes some of these stories like we find ourselves in today in Acts chapter six, verses one through seven. Because today, as we look at these seven verses, to be honest with you, it's kind of like a middle school cafeteria drama what we're looking at. You guys, all, all you teachers know what I'm talking about, uh, and all you middle schoolers know what I'm talking about. And I say that because as the church grew, they encountered some drama. Now, you know I'm a big sports fan. I love all sports, basketball, baseball, hockey, uh, anything really. I love it all. But basketball happens to be one of my favorite sports. Uh, the Lord didn't let me grow past 5'6". I always say if I, was, if I was over six foot, I'd be in the NBA today, but God had... <laughs> God had other plans. Love basketball. One of my favorite players, uh, at least to watch, is a big guy by the name of Anthony Davis. Now, many of you know him because he played for UK, and we've got a few UK fans in the house today, right? Okay, one or two of you. <laughs> there you go. Anthony Davis is six foot 11 inches, and he's an eight time NBA All-Star who currently plays for the LA Lakers. But when he was in high school, he grew from six two to 6'10", between his sophomore and his senior year. That's eight inches in 18 months. Think about that. So when he was 6'2", playing basketball in high school, he had a scholarship offer from Cleveland State University. By his senior year, he was the number one high school player in the nation. <laughs> he just got lucky because he got height. Otherwise, I'd be that too, right? 6'11", come on, it's not even fair. 
Now his growth spurt, it was helpful when it came to basketball, but it also created challenges. His parents, I, I watched a documentary and his parents talked about how, how they had to keep buying him clothes all the time because they would buy him something, he would wear it once or twice, he'd outgrow it. He was just growing that much. It became a, a problem for his parents. He had to learn to play a new position. He, he had to learn how to rebound, block shots, post up. In fact, his heroes shifted from small guards to the big guys. And I say that because... In Acts 6, Luke describes the blessings and the challenges that come with growth. And we see this practical truth illustrated. And, and listen to me. If, in fact, today I've done something a little different with our format. Will you guys give it up? These, our youth are sitting up in the front because they are hungry for God's word. Over here I got a bunch of our young adults who are hungry for God's word. So I did something a little different in our notes because my, my daughter let me know, Dad, sometimes you like to talk a lot and you're hard to follow. Now, what I want is, it doesn't matter your age group, I want you to be able to come in here on Sunday and as we dig deep into God's word, you're gonna walk home with something. So I have made some fill in the blanks for all my youth students and, and for my, some of my young adults, for those who it's easier for you to follow along, but we're still going verse by verse doing expository preaching. We're, then we're gonna take those notes that we give you guys and we're gonna develop that into something Monday through Friday that mom and dad can go over with their kids or just, or just anybody, really. So there's gonna be something geared towards kids, geared towards youth, geared towards young adults, and geared towards adults. And that's gonna be based on what we preach on Sunday. So we wanna go even deeper into God's word. Yeah, so give it up one more time for our youth. Love having them in here. Now, here's, here's the truth. You Taking notes, you can write this down. Gospel growth always brings blessing, problems, and opportunities. Okay, gospel growth always, and I mean always, brings blessing, problems, and opportunities. So look with me in verse one. Look with me real quick. It says, now, in these days when the disciples were increasing in number... And I want to stop just for a minute because I need you to know this. This is the first time that term disciples appears in the book of Acts, at least referring to Christians. It's used in the Gospels. The disciples became apostles as Christ sent them out. Disciple meaning learner and apostle meaning the one who was sent out. But now Luke uses that term to describe Christians. So he's talking about any Christian here when he says the, the number of disciples were increasing, Okay. A complaint by the Hellenists, and again, it just means Jews with Greek cultural roots. Uh, the Greek word for Hellas refers to the geographic region of Greece. So a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Now, here's what you need to know. We should seek and celebrate gospel-centered church growth. We should. We should seek and celebrate gospel-centered church growth. And Luke makes at least 10 summary statements about the growth of the church. That's significant. 10 times Luke makes mention of the church growing. And I don't have time to go through all of them this morning. But in a nutshell, Luke records that 3,000 souls were saved. That was Peter's first sermon on Pentecost. So we have 3,120 then we have a reference to that number. It grew and increased. And there's a second reference to number. And that number is that the church grew to about 5,000. So in only a matter of months, the church went from 120 to 5,000. 
Can you imagine that? Can you imagine if that happened here at New Heights? Like we, we've got about 700 seats here on the bottom level and we, we're averaging, uh, and this is across the board, not just in our sanctuary, but we're averaging about 450 on a Sunday morning. By, by the way, that's amazing, isn't it? Church growth. We're experiencing growth right now. Statistics say that most churches are in decline. So I praise God that New Heights Church is, is experiencing growth. But can you imagine, we only have 7,000 seats if all of a sudden we grew to 5,000 in a matter of two weeks. I mean, it would be a problem, a good problem, but it would be a problem. We wouldn't, we wouldn't have enough room for them. So they see rapid growth. They saw amazing growth at the beginning of the church age. And you know, different people react differently to church growth. Some find it really easy to celebrate because their entire ministry is geared towards aiming for numerical growth. They want more and more people. They want to fill those seats. And, and I'll tell you what, as a pastor, the pressure is real. The pressure is real. Sometimes that's what the main focus is. Always, you go to any uh, sectional meeting and you meet with fellow pastors, the one question they're going to ask you is, what are you running on Sunday? Right? They track that growth. Even headquarters puts pressure on you. They want to know if you're growing. So the pressure is real. But different people react differently to church growth. So some find it really easy to celebrate, and some have a really negative view of numerical growth because of the fact that so many are obsessed with it. And some feel many, in order to experience growth, have sacrificed core principles in order to welcome that growth. This is why I love the Bible. This is why I love this text, because it helps us understand church growth sensibly. The early church definitely experienced growth. Luke mentions it because growth, now it can't be the only metric used to measure success, but growth uh, numbers, they need to be considered, right? The early church grew, but it was a particular growth that they experience, and it's a growth that we need to pursue. It was a gospel-centered growth. Now, here's, here's what gospel-centered growth is. It comes as a result of passionate gospel preaching and compassionate ministry. See, gospel-centered preaching is based upon a theology in which Jesus is at the center of everything. Jesus is at the center of everything. You know, Jesus, depending on who you ask, Jesus can mean different things to different people. But here's what I want you to understand because I've met so many people who will tell me, yeah, we love Jesus or we, we worship Jesus and then their lifestyle doesn't reflect it because they're gonna take certain things that they like that Jesus says and the things he, they don't like that he says and they're not gonna follow him. You don't get to come up with your own narrative. Jesus is who he said he was. You don't get to come up with your own definition of who Jesus is. Jesus is who he said he was. Jesus is clear about it in all of uh, the gospels and, and then all the apostles are clear about who Jesus is. He made some radical statements and you don't get to create your own definition of who Jesus is, okay? Gospel-centered preaching is based upon a theology in which Jesus is the center of everything. I like what J.I. Packer says. He says, the proper aim of preaching is to mediate meetings with God. That's powerful. It's also a lot of pressure. These meetings are the work of the Holy Spirit. He uses the proclamation of Jesus Christ to bring them about. God meets with his people as Jesus is faithfully proclaimed through his word. I've said before, I've been asked, Justin, why do you do expository preaching every week? Isn't that a burden to you? Yeah, sometimes I want to do topical because we just don't have enough hours in the week. And and doing expository verse-by-verse preaching, is it's kind of like writing an essay every single week. You can ask my admin. I mean, I close my door Monday and Tuesday, lock myself in my office and work, work at it, just unpacking whatever text I'm preaching. It is a lot of work. 
but we always say that Jesus is the ultimate authority in his church. And how does Jesus have that ultimate authority? It's gonna be through his spoken word. Jesus' spoken word is, is the priority. That's why we do verse by verse, because I've got a lot of opinions, and they don't matter. God's word does. You're not coming here to hear my opinion, you're coming here to hear God's word, right? Amen. All right. So with the apostles preached, they proclaimed Jesus. They proclaimed his identity as Lord, his judgment of sin, his salvation for sinners, and his call to faith and repentance. That's what they preached. They preached the gospel because for them, the good news of Jesus was all that mattered. That and that alone had the power to save souls, nourish people in faith, and build up the church. The preaching of the gospel. The preaching of Jesus Christ. There were no gimmicks behind the early church's growth. They were not handing out watered-down sermons. They weren't giving out gift bags with cool swag, and none of that's wrong, but that's not what they were doing. None of that, but God was bringing in the converts. Now look, I'm telling you today, I've said it before, churches can grow a crowd in so many different ways, but a church, and I'm gonna, not just any church, I'm gonna say, but New Heights Church will be built only through people embracing the gospel. I don't want to build a crowd. I don't want to wow and dazzle the crowd. I want people coming, and I want to see a gospel-centered growth, and that's going to come through people embracing the gospel. That means we have to be faithful to preach the gospel, right? New Heights Church will keep the Bible and the gospel primary. Now remember, last week, the end of chapter 5, verse 42, it says the church kept teaching and preaching Christ every day. Now again, they were living in a culture that was very hostile to what they were doing, told you these guys got flogged and they still got up went to the temple still were preaching and teaching Jesus we will preach and teach Jesus no matter what that's what we as a church will do and as we do that I'm telling you and I'm no prophet but we will experience growth and it'll be a growth we can celebrate okay now remember in Acts 5 when Ananias and Sapphira sinned God subtracted from the church now God's multiplying the church, and we find the murmuring comes into the church. This is where murmuring and complaining comes in. And then there's division in the church. So let me teach you something about God's arithmetic, okay? God first adds, God subtracts, he then multiplies, and then Satan comes in and tries to divide. This growing church is facing a problem, the problem of division. The problem of complaining. Some of your translations will say murmuring. And you know what? This kind of thing happens when a church is growing. Whenever the light shines the brightest, it attracts the bugs, right? (laughs) Did you ever notice that? Flip the porch light on at night, and what happens? The bugs show up. And so when there's a church that's preaching the word and the light is shining, bugs are going to come. And they do bug you when they come, by the way. (laughs) Bugs will come. There's, there's now going to be division in the church. And you know what I find interesting? That Satan attacked them with persecution. We've seen that in the book of Acts already. Then Satan attacked them with hypocrisy with inside the church. And now Satan's going to attack them by Christians actually arguing and dividing with other Christians. The Bible actually says in Proverbs 6 that one of the seven things God hates is a person who stirs up conflict in the community. Community being the body of Christ. God actually says he hates that. We focus on all the other things God hates, but we never talk about that. And this is what's happening here in chapter 6. There's going to be some discord, some difficulty in the family and the community. There was a complaint. A couple people are upset, 
and then more people got involved, and then it's sort of like this, like a brush fire that keeps burning. Next thing you know, it's kind of a big thing. It became public. And just, just so you know, for those who are always on the lookout for a perfect church with a perfect pastor, would you look at this text, please? <laughs> The early church, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. They were led by the Holy Spirit. They were empowered by the Holy Spirit. They loved people and they worked hard. They had good doctrine and they had good leaders and they still had a big problem. There's no such thing as a perfect church. Now look back at the text. It says, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Now, I want to focus on the positive first here, okay? There's diversity in the church. There's diversity in church, and that's a wonderful thing. Even represented here today at New Heights Church, so many of us come from different backgrounds and different cultures, and I love that. One of the things I told the board when I came here is we are going to be a church with many different cultures. Many different cultures. Some of us are from different social strata, different education, maybe different places around the U.S. and around the world for that matter, but we're all brothers and sisters in Christ. Amen? Now, a little background info on our text. The church in Jerusalem has this really well-formed pattern of taking care of itself. Okay? When the synagogue met together once a week, they would take up a weekly offering, and they called it the food basket. People would bring clothes and food once a week when they came to church, and the church would distribute this to the other Jews who had need. There was also a daily offering in Jerusalem called the food bowl. So this was an offering to the Jewish travelers who were passing through Jerusalem who were hungry but didn't have any money. The church had something for the Jews who were passing through. They did really well at taking care of them. Now we've got a group of people that are growing and the church is exploding and there's this different race of people, a different ethnicity of people and the Greek system doesn't have a way of taking care of these widows. In the Jewish system, they've got a good way of handling these widows. In the Greek, not so much. So the Greek, the Greek widows, they didn't have a system for taking care of them. It's not a bad problem. It's not a good problem. It's just a new problem, okay? So now the church has to figure out how to handle this problem, and that's really what we're reading in verse 1. And I want you to understand that verse 1 is talking about a life or death urgent issue. So imagine you're one of the people from the church who comes up to the apostles and say, hey, do you realize that there's a group of women in your church who are literally starving to death? The government doesn't take care of them. If we don't give them something to eat, they're going to die of starvation. That's what's going on in verse 1. Now, before we get back to that, I want you to understand this. There are, there's actually two problems with this complaint. We as a church need to stop and look at it for a minute. Okay? Number one, they've established a reason. They've come up with their own narrative here. The text says the Hellenists complained against the Hebrews. In other words, they assumed the Hebrews were leaving them out for racial and cultural reasons. Number two, the second problem here with this complaint is they never brought it to the apostles. The text says a complaint arose, which implies there was this general murmuring and backbiting going on in small groups all across Jerusalem that finally surfaced. You know, they don't care about us, the apostles. Church, I want you to understand something. This is a significant threat. Nothing is used by Satan more effectively than distrust and resentment in the church. Nothing. I want you to also understand this is Satan's third major attack on the church. We've already talked about it a little bit, but in Acts 4, he attacked the church through persecuting government. In Acts 5, he attacked it through embezzling hypocrisy of one of its leaders, Ananias. And now in Acts 6, he attacked it through a spirit of grumbling, distrust, and backbiting. This might be the most serious threat 
that endangers churches. A spirit of grumbling and complaining kills more churches than persecution does. I'm going to say that again. (laughs) A spirit of grumbling and complaining kills more churches than persecution does. I am always so saddened when I see churches split over the silliest things. You know, when my dad first went into ministry, he was an attorney before he went into full-time ministry, and the district invited him to be the district attorney for uh, the uh, Pacific Northwest, and, and that's what he did. Part of his job was to go in and be a peacemaker when churches were fighting and about to split. And I can't believe that they actually could create a job like that that there were so many churches in the state of Washington that were splitting over the stupidest things that my dad had a full-time job just going in and being a peacemaker. You guys ever heard the story of a man who had been shipwrecked on an uninhabited, uh, deserted island? You know, there he lived alone for 10 years before finally being rescued by a passing aircraft. And before leaving the island, one of the rescuers asked if they could see where the man had lived during this time on the island. And so he brought them, the, the small group, to a clearing where there was three buildings Pointing to the first, he said, that was my home, and I built it when I first moved here all those years ago. They said, well, what about the building besides it? Oh, that's where I, that's where I would worship every week, he said. And then they said, and that building beside that? Ugh. He said, don't bring that up, replied the man in an agitated tone. That's where I used to worship. <laughs> One person, and there's been a church split. It's a silly story, but, but it's so true about our churches. We split over the dumbest, ridiculous things ever. We'll argue with each other over things that don't matter. Now, do you understand that when you speak evil of your brothers and sisters, and especially when you judge their motives, you're being used by Satan? I'm going to say it again. Do you understand that when you speak evil of your brothers and sisters, and especially when you judge their motives, you're being used by Satan? I don't care where it's taken place. I don't care if it's the, in the atrium of the church. I don't care if it's at Starbucks. I don't care where it is. When you start judging people and speaking negatively and you start criticizing somebody and you start judging their motives and why they made a decision they did, you are being used by Satan. When you have a problem and you will, you will, you always need to go straight to the source. Do you know how much disharmony you would avoid if you just operated that way? If we, if we as Christians would just operate that way, do you know how much, uh, we, how much trouble we would avoid? And, and I want this to be clear too. Nothing wrong with going to the church leadership when you see a problem. There is absolutely nothing wrong with that. It's not rebellious. It's not you're out of line. You see a problem in church, you can go to church leadership. That's not the problem. The problem is, There's something wrong when you begin to go to the rest of the congregation. Does that make sense? You've got a problem, and instead of going straight to the source, you're talking about with everybody else in the congregation. That's a problem. You murmur, you complain, you cause division, strife, and you go with an attitude that's critical and fault-finding. And here's my caution to you. You need to be careful that you're not sowing discord among the community. You need to be careful God's word says he hates it. He hates it. So be careful. Look with me at verse 2. And the 12 summoned, the 12, he's referring to the 12 apostles here, summoned the, the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Now, think about this for a second. The apostles hear this problem and their response is, it wouldn't be right for us to give up preaching. Maybe you guys didn't hear us. I said, there are some women who are dying of starvation in the church 
what are you going to do about it? The English translation of the Bible just doesn't do their response justice because here's what they're saying. Hey, every leader has to make decisions. We're weighing what you're asking us to do right now. We're not saying that this isn't important. In fact, we're willing to admit that this is urgent, what you're describing today. We're just not saying it's, it's, it's not most important. Now, that is, that's hard to read, because especially if you're a compassionate person. Because the text is doing a pretty good, clear job of saying that these women are starving. And here are the apostles saying it is important, but this other priority is more important. Now, this is a hard pill to swallow sometimes, for me at least. It's not of the ultimate importance. In fact, if you look at the end of verse 2, they're saying quite literally what Jesus said. A man doesn't live by bread alone, but also by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. You need physical bread. Of course you do, but you also need spiritual bread. The apostles are saying, look, if, if we're being forced to choose between the two, the one that is more worthy of our attention is going to be preaching of God's word. Now, if there's ever a text in all the Bible that shows you the value and the importance of preaching God's word, it's this. The fact that the disciples were going to say, look, if I got to choose, this is what we're going to choose to do. That's where we're going to give our attention to. The apostles say to the believers, it's not right. It's not reason. It's not the right thing to do that we should leave the word of God and begin to serve tables. Now, listen, because that word tables was used for a table that would be used to count money or also to eat off. So it's believed that the job that they were doing was, was taking in funds and money and then distributing it. That's what the, the disciples had been doing up to this point. It, it did involve feeding those that were in the church too. We talked about it. So it's the danger, but, but they're saying there's this danger of losing the proper priorities. One of the most dangerous problems that faces so many churches today is that the leadership doesn't understand the purpose or the priorities of the church. What they do is they kind of get the cart before the horse. They start thinking that the church exists for itself, that it exists just for growth. It's a wonderful thing to grow, but they forget that they're there to win the loss and to disciple believers, to equip them for service, for glory of God. Right? And how do you do that? You do all that in, by, and through the word of God. That's why I just cannot believe, I can't fathom it, that I can go to so many different church growth conferences and I never hear anything about the word of God. What is wrong with that picture? How do you do anything if it's not through the word of God, right? We're wasting our time if we're coming up with all these different activities and these different events and these different ministries and the word of God is being neglected in our church. And, and I want you to understand, don't read this and think to yourself that the apostles were saying that serving tables was beneath them because that's not what's happening here either. If you think that, you're off base. I want you to see that the fact that they had to call on a team to serve tables because some were getting more implies that the apostles were already doing it for the Jewish widows. The apostles thought of themselves as servants. Just read the Gospels. They were followers of Jesus who had washed their feet. So, so for the first six chapters, they had been waiting on tables. Do you understand that? They had been doing this. But now they realize this job is way too much. The church has grown. We're not 120 people anymore. We're 5,000. And if we're going to keep doing this, it would consume our time. And the greatest act of service they can provide the church is teaching the word accurately, seeking God in prayer on behalf of the church, and training other people to do the same. They're not moving on up. They're not getting promoted out of service, just focusing on the most effective kind of service. Because if they were going to continue to take care of the needs, they would have to quit teaching the Bible. They'd have to quit any kind of discipleship going on, quit preaching, quit having evangelism, just so that they could make sure that these widows were being fed. Five, a church of 5,000 people 
they had to work really hard at that point if they were going to continue to do this ministry. It reminds me of a story I once heard about a young man who, who said this to Donald Gray Barnhouse. He said, I'd give the world to be able to teach the Bible like you. He looked straight in, straight in the eye of Dr. Barnhouse and he replied, or Dr. Barnhouse replied, good, because that's exactly what it'll cost you. Too many churches are abandoning the preaching of the word for a social gospel. They're all about feeding the poor. And listen, it's, it's good to feed the poor. It's really good to feed the poor. But you can feed and clothe people, but if they die in their sins and go to hell, what does it profit us? If we're just handing out food, we're just fattening people to go to hell. You can gain the whole world, but if you lose your soul, it profits you nothing. So please hear me and hear me accurately. We never want to abandon the preaching of the word for a purely social gospel. But with that being said, for all those who are upset with me right now and saying, Pastor Justin's telling us that feeding the poor isn't important. You're not listening to me, so follow me. Keep following me. Here we have a perfect example of the disciples saying that has to happen too. That that's going to be the outflow of a healthy church. But now these, these apostles are going to have to point somebody to do that. Right? And that's what we see in verse 3. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and full of wisdom, who we will appoint to this duty. So would you, what I want you to do is pay real close attention to the criteria here. Who do we look for? What should we try to find a guy who's going to help with this problem? Verse 3 says, they have to find men who have good reputations, who are full of the spirit and wisdom, and appoint them to this duty. Now, what should be jumping off the page of the Bible to you right now is what's not on this list. Because nowhere on this list does it say, hey, go find us seven guys who have experience taking care of widows, and we'll give them a bag of money and let them go and take care of this issue. Here's what the church is saying. You give me some folks who have a passionate walk with King Jesus and who are listening to the Holy Spirit, and we can trust them with a little bit of responsibility. And then we can send them out to do their thing, and we know it'll be just fine because the Holy Spirit will lead these folks to take care of this problem. You know, the whole idea behind full of the Spirit and wisdom is that these guys needed to be both spiritually minded and practically minded. Verse 4. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Second time now that the apostles say this. Again, the church belongs to God. The church is God's people, God's sheep. Sheep need to be fed, protected, and led, not driven or beat. I am only the under-shepherd of this church. God is the shepherd. Jesus didn't say, beat my sheep. He said, feed my sheep. He didn't say, entertain my sheep. He said, feed my sheep. Again, the food that you use to feed the sheep is the word of God. The only way the shepherd can feed the sheep is to give them God's word. Nothing more, nothing less. That's why Paul told Timothy, a young pastor, to preach the word. Preach the word. Be in, be in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering or patience and doctrine. He told them why you should preach the word too because the time's going to come when they will not endure sound doctrine but after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers or preachers. They're going to have itching ears and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. Now I believe that's what we are witnessing in so many circles of church today and it's sad that the word of God is being neglected, the sheep are not being fed and the church is anemic because of its lack of good teaching. 
Because here you see the dynamic duo in a church, prayer and God's word. There's no substitute for those two things in church today, prayer and God's word. Most of our books today who teach us how to grow churches don't even mention prayer or mention preaching. And yet the two are vitally linked together. It's interesting when you read about the armor of God too, by the way. You learn that we're to take up the sword of the spirit, which is what? What's the sword of the spirit? The word of God, right? You remember the very next thing he says, prayer always with all prayer and supplication and watching thereunto. So it's, it's the word of God and it's prayer. You remember the Old Testament story of Nehemiah? He's building the walls. It says, we made our prayer unto God and set a watch against them. They actually had a sword in one hand and a tool in the other. They're building and they're battling. They have a sword and a tool and they're praying to God. They're laying mortar and brick, putting up the walls and fighting with the sword, praying and talking to God. What a picture of ministry that is. (laughs) Man, it takes prayer. It takes the word of God. But I want you to notice the priorities there. Word of God and prayer. That's the priorities. Verse five, look with me. It says, and what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen. Now, all you pregnant, soon-to-be moms out there, if you're looking for good names for boys, we got a list right here. Okay, are you ready? Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. All right, tough names. (laughs) Now, again... Remember, these were the guys with good reputation and spiritual and practical wisdom. That's exactly what the Bible described for us in our text. And in fact, Dr. Luke doesn't let you miss this. Look at the list of these names on the screen. Every one of the names are Greek names. In fact, at the end of verse 5, the writer of Acts doesn't allow you to miss it, Dr. Luke. The guys were converts to new faith. They've come to faith in Christ out of a Hellenistic background. And, and they're saying, here's what they're saying. Let's let the Greeks who know the problems, know the people, take care of the Greek problems in the church. The church is growing, it's experiencing diversity, it's experiencing some racial and ethnic challenges, and the church finds people who are right there in the midst, who know the problems, are able to take care of the problems. That's a win-win solution. And by the way, everybody knew who these seven people were. They had a good reputation. And as a result, the apostles give them a little bit of responsibility, and they say, hey, would you take care of this problem for us now? Now, this is really important because you're going to see a word. You see the word duty there? The word duty is temporary, and it's directly tied to the problem, meaning this. In the New Testament, where you see people serving as deacons, it's because a problem crops up. They find a person who can handle the problem, and when the thing is not a problem anymore, they go back to doing what they were doing before. So there are no deacons that exist forever in the New Testament. It's kind of a, as a problem comes up kind of thing. We find the folks who can address the problem, and we let them handle the problem so the elders or the apostles of the church don't have to do it. Now, in America, we've come up with this system where we make the pastor the superstar and we make the pastor the celebrity. In fact, churches are built around pastors' personalities. (laughs) Can't be, can't be. Any effective church knows that the pastor's called to preach, deliver the word, but my job as a pastor is to put the resources in your hands because God has called you guys to go out. Ministry doesn't take place on a Sunday morning here. The best ministry takes place outside these doors. When you guys go out full of the Holy Spirit and you're actor- interacting with lost people all the time, that's where the ministry takes place. Ow, that hurt. <laughs> 
says these, they set before the apostles and they prayed and laid their hands on them. They laid their hands on them. It means they delegated authority. What happens in the Bible is that when a leader chooses another leader and it's confirmed by the Holy Spirit and the rest of the team, then they lay hands on the person, they commission them into ministry. And here's what it's showing. It's showing this. We believe that God has put his hand on them proverbially speaking, and therefore we're going to put our hand on them physically speaking. And as they go out to do their ministry, they're doing it under our authority, under our authority. So the apostles are saying, we won't be there serving the tables, but, but we're gonna send these people and they come on our behalf. They represent us. So if you're upset, you need to talk to them. If you think things are running amok, you need to, have, you need to go talk to them, not us. You need to go to them because they represent us. Now, let me ask you this today, this morning. Do you think anybody was upset that it was, wasn't Peter or John coming and ask, checking up on them? They're probably thinking, who's Nicanor? Where's Peter? Where's John, right? You think some were ticked off that John wasn't serving him, he wasn't checking up? I guarantee you, to some, that would have been a big change. Even felt like a loss. But here's the deal. Here's what the text is teaching us. Christianity needs to go forward. Think about Think about, here we are, 2,000 years later, celebrating Christianity, celebrating Jesus Christ, our risen Savior. We're here because the apostles got back to preaching, teaching, making disciples, and planting churches. Now, I want to caution you again today. You need to be very careful to come up with your own reason for the behavior of a leader. We kind of touched on this already. We talked about two reasons the complaint was not good. I want to warn you again. You need to be very careful coming up with your own reason for the behavior of a leader. Example, well, you know why Peter's not here? He doesn't love us. He doesn't care about us. You know why? He's a bigot. He's hateful. He's too proud. He really has lost his way. He's changed. He's not like he used to be. You need to be careful. You need to be careful. If a pastor really loves his sheep, then he's going to want what's best for his sheep. But the reality, this is the reality, is that sometimes what their sheep will need the most is something the pastor cannot give. Sometimes the pastor won't have the necessary tools in his toolbox. And I'm not just talking about time here, but as churches grow, I'm only one person. I can't be everywhere at once. And I'm not doing my job if I'm not raising up people in the church that can go meet the needs. I won't be able to go to every single hospital visit. I won't be able to do every single funeral, not as we continue to grow. We're gonna have to start practicing this here in this, because I believe we're gonna grow. I believe we are gonna grow. And I believe that I'm going to need more and more people to step up and meet needs. Not just my pastoral staff. Those that call New Heights Church their church. You know, think about parenting for a minute. My job as a dad, it's to love, protect, and serve my kids. But if my son, if Asher goes hunting with me, I got his attention now. If Asher, if Asher goes hunting with me and an accident takes place, he shoots himself with an arrow. I should get him a doctor. I shouldn't Google arrow wound and try my best, right? I should find a specialist who's going to be able to work on my son. But I thought a parent loves their kids. Don't you love your son? Yes, I do. That's why I'm going to go get him a specialist. Trust me, this is loving. You don't want me attempting to pull the arrow. I'm dead, but I'm not a specialist at removing arrows. And that's what we have happening here in our text. Leaders are being leaders. They're adapting to the change that's taking place. The apostles are seeing this rapid growth and having the wisdom to understand that in order to continue growing and have more people come into the fold, we're not going to do the food anymore. 
we're going to do prayer and preaching. That's what we're going to do. Certain people are good with their works. They're going to take care of all of this other stuff. God has called us to be preachers and teachers. So we've got to get back to the word of God. You see that? Look with me at verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Here we've got the results. Here we have a byproduct. Here we have the benefit of what happens when the church keeps its priorities and they stay focused on what it's called to do. It doesn't get distracted. It doesn't go away from the preaching and teaching of the word of God and prayer. And then God adds to the church those that need to be saved. And the word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And the word of God continued to increase. If we want to see our church grow, then we need to be people committed to the word of God. Three things take place. The word of God's word increased, the number of disciples was multiplied, and priests were beginning to serve. They became obedient to the faith. Now this is what would ultimately bring the church into persecution. <laughs> Several places throughout the book of Acts, he gives us what's called the summary statement. I talked about it a little earlier. Summary statement is the word of God increased, the numbers of disciples multiplied, God's adding, he's multiplying in Jerusalem greatly, and a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. So remember again, God's arithmetic. God adds, subtracts, and multiplies. And even though Satan came in, he tried to bring persecution, tries to bring sin into the church through Ananias and Sapphira, and he also tries to bring division and strife, the word of God grew and multiplied. This is what we want as a church. Amen? We don't want to divide. We don't want to fight. We don't want hypocrisy. We want the word of God to grow and to multiply among us. That's what we want. So here's a question for you today. Here's a question for all of us. Why the specific mention of priests? They, were, they weren't the only group that got saved. So why, why, uh, why is he specifically mentioning this group? Well, I've got an idea. In the Old Testament, priests were in charge of taking care of the poor. And here you have a whole group of people acting like priests, doing what priests did. Priests are good with people, counseling, loving, encouraging, serving, befriending, preserving with people. They love people. They understand people. They help people. They care about people. They wake up in the morning. What's on their mind? People. The church has become a nation of priests. They take care of the poor and, and commune directly in the presence of God. This is our identity now. You've got to see this. Uh, we are no longer identified by our race, our culture, our social strata, where we come from. Listen to the words of Peter in 1 Peter 2.9. Listen to this. The pastor of this movement that we're currently reading right now, he tells us this, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession. Now listen to me. Jesus is, our, is now our foundation. We have this new identity in Jesus. God chose us to be in his family. And in order to do that, you've got to become a part of the movement. So my question for you is, what are you, what are you doing to serve this church? What are you doing to serve the church? I want to tell you a true story. In fact, this is such an amazing story that Disney is getting ready to make uh, Richard Montanez's life story into a movie. You see, Richard is the son of a Mexican immigrant. Richard's dad came to the U.S. legally, and he was a migrant worker on a U.S. visa in Southern California. Richard's dad brought his entire family to live in a migrant work camp. And Richard, his 11 brothers and sisters and his parents lived in a one-bedroom house. 13 people, one bedroom. 
Now, Richard wasn't really good at school. He didn't know a lot of English, so Richard failed out of school and ended up dropping out before high school. He started to get minimum wage jobs. He worked in a chicken slaughtering house. He worked as a gardener. He was working in a car wash, and a friend of his said, hey, the local factory in town, the Frito-Lay factory, is hiring. You should, you should apply. Richard didn't even know how to fill out the application. He needed his future wife's help just to fill out the application. He got a job at the Frito-Lay factory as a night janitor. This, kind, this, this is the kind of lowest on the low of the totem pole, right? This is an entry-level minimum wage job, but one day at the Frito-Lay factory, there was a problem on the factory floor. The machine that makes Cheetos broke down. They had these undone, useless Cheetos, and Richard had to clean up this big mess. He took some of the Cheetos home, started to experiment in his own house, and he says, you know, my people, we like it hot and spicy, so we like chili powder, jalapenos, and lime on stuff. That's what we like, he said. He started to play around with some of the hot and spicy Cheetos, and he created the Flaming Hot Cheeto. Now, this is a true story. You can Google it. Not now, but you can Google it later. Now, just before this machine broke down, the company's CEO, Roger Enrico, sent out a message to everybody in the company and said, this is your company, not mine. If we're going to get better, then you have to take ownership of your company. If you've got a good idea, let me know. Well, Richard was at home playing around his, in his garage with flaming hot Cheetos, and he decided to call up the company's CEO. He asked for a meeting. Richard tells, Richard tells us it's amazing that I could even get a meeting with this guy, but he shows up in the CEO's office and says this, I have an idea for the Cheetos. Why don't you consider making a spicy version of this? And why don't you call it flaming hot Cheetos? The CEO did a little market research and uh, decided that flaming hot Cheetos would make billions of dollars worth of sales. So Richard went from being a night janitor to an executive with Pepsi-Cola, then owning the company of Frito-Lay. He goes all over the world. He talks about the importance of diversity, why it's important in a company. He also talks about taking ownership. And here's a direct quote from the mastermind behind these flaming hot Cheetos. Are you ready? He says this, don't take your position for granted. Regardless of what that position may be, CEO or janitor, act like you own the company. When you see people serving in some capacity and everybody's giving what God has called them and equipped them and gifted them to give, the whole church is better for it. The whole church is better for it. See, you might be sitting down thinking, I've got no gift to give, and that's wrong. You've got something to give, and I don't care what it is. Act like you own the company. This is your church, and we need everybody working together, locking arms if we're gonna see this community change for Jesus Christ. And I did not come home from the mission field to just be your status quo pastor and pastor some regular church. I came home because I knew God was behind it. I knew God wanted to do something at New Heights Church and I knew he would. And I knew it, I knew it, I knew it, I still know it. This church is gonna make an impact on this world. We've done it before. We've got an amazing 60 year history, but God is not done with us yet. We've still got more work to do and I need all hands on deck to do it. So I want you to pray today as we close out the sermon. What is it that God is asking you to do? Because we need volunteers all over the place. If we're going to continue to grow, I need more children's workers. I need more nursery workers. I need more greeters, more ushers. I need people to come up with ideas for ministry. Man, Pastor Stanley just created a outreach team and it's exploding. Most of the people that we're seeing in the Spanish congregation right now is a direct result of Pastor Stanley going out to the people. There is a place for you to serve. You just need to get on board and say, God, whatever my gift is, it's yours. Use it the way you'd like. Jesus, we 
love you and praise you and worship you. Thank you that we get to be a part of this church. Thank you that you have put a call on each of our lives. And I pray that the Holy Spirit would empower us and give us boldness to go out and live a life of faith for you. And I pray, Lord, that we would see gospel-centered growth. That as we stick to your word, that you would do what only you can do and you would bring real life change, real life transformation and people would be able to experience your mercy and your grace. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.